This text is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. From the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, that's John, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw, I want you to underline that word, saw, because there are three Greek words translated saw in the English in this text. That's the first of them. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw, that's the second word, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw, third word, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes." The coffin of Abraham Lincoln was pried open twice. The first time was in 1887, 22 years after his assassination, to dispel the rumor that his body was not indeed in the coffin. Fourteen years later, the same rumor spread, and so they opened the coffin the second time. But when they closed it the second time, they submerged it in a crypt in Springfield, Illinois and covered it with tons of cement to seal it forever. I can imagine that thousands of spectators were there the day it was pried open, anxious to see if indeed his body was still in the coffin, wondering what they would do if it were not. We come this morning again to the tomb, to the grave of Jesus, to look again to see if His body is there, knowing that all of what we believe and all of which we base our hope on rests on the fact, not that His body is there, but that it isn't. And so we come, if at no other time during the year, we do come on this day, because there is something inside of us that keeps desiring to hear again the words of the angel, He is not here, He is risen, He is alive. I summon you this morning as to a courtroom 
And I want you to be the jury that will make an important decision when this service is over. The decision is, is the resurrection a myth or a miracle? You are the jury. The defendant is a Galilean who for 30 years lived as a carpenter in obscurity. The last three years of his life he was an itinerant preacher that literally rocked the world. And he was tried six times before he was found guilty of treason and was given the death sentence. You are the jury to decide two important issues. The first issue has to do with his death. Did he really die? Was he really dead? And the second issue, was he really raised from the dead? Is there such a thing as the miracle of the resurrection? Now the prosecution has some theories to present. Will you listen, jury, to the prosecution? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a theory concerning his death. Our theory is called the swoon theory. We contend that Jesus was not really dead. A man doesn't live after he's been dead. God never dies. If this was God, he really wasn't dead. Our theory is that on the cross, in the torment of it, in the backwash of all of that pain, he just fainted, he swooned. He entered into a kind of a comatose state, into a coma. And when they took him down from the cross and put him in the cool, damp tomb, he was revived and slipped away in the darkness. Our theory concerning the resurrection is this. If it is indeed proven this morning that he was dead, we have two theories concerning the resurrection. The first is the theft theory. We contend that Jesus was taken from the tomb by his friends when no one was able to see in the cover of darkness. As an aside, you might turn to the 28th chapter of Matthew sometime and read that when the guards made their report to the council, to the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin paid them large sums of money to say indeed that the body of Jesus had been stolen. Our second theory concerning the resurrection is the hallucination theory. We contend that in the trauma and the backlash of his death, these women, these women came to the wrong tomb. And having come to the wrong tomb and found it empty, in the trauma of that and in the excitement, they saw this phantom and heard this voice. It happens all the time. There have been many cases, many times, where in the trauma of one's death, one has heard their voice and seen their image. Therefore we contend that an hallucination occurred and that Jesus was really not raised from the dead. And the prosecution rests. I agree with Arnold Toynbee that if indeed those theories are true, all the enemies of Jesus would have had to, to have done was present the body of Christ and the myth would have been dispelled. Said Toynbee, show me the body of the dead Jew and Christianity crumbles immediately. Now it's time for the defense to present its case. Would you listen, judge, would you listen, jury, to our defense, to the, to the evidence we'd like to bring first that he indeed was dead. We bring this morning five lawyers, five attorneys who are sworn by God to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. 
These attorneys are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Apostle Paul. Listen to their testimony. Matthew first. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And Mark speaks to say, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And Luke testifies, And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And John testifies, When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And the Apostle Paul witnesses, For I deliver to you of first importance which what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And if you'll read the Gospels, in all four of them there are two lengthy paragraphs setting forth the evidence that He was indeed dead and buried. But the prosecution protests what we need this morning is not the evidence of biased attorneys. What we need is an eyewitness, and so we present the defense four eyewitnesses to his death. The first is the eyewitness, the centurion, a leading official in the Roman army, one skilled in the fine art of execution, a high-ranking man who gained his rank by making clear, concise, and correct decisions. What was your decision concerning his death? His decision, he testifies, is this was truly the Son of God. Underline was. It's Aris tense, past action. He was. He was alive. Now he's dead. He was and is no more. The second eyewitness is one who represents the soldiers who crucified him. Not unusual for them. They never got used to it, but they did it often. They executed many criminals like those at Calvary. And at the end of the day, the execution day, as an act of mercy, they would go and break their legs. They did that to hasten their death. For as they hung on the cross, literally gasping for breath, because of the weight pulling down, they had to use their legs as leverage to lunge forward, to raise themselves upward and gasp for the next breath. And so the soldiers would come and break their legs so they would have no leverage and would smother to death. But when they came to the body, to to the Christ crucified on that center cross, they did not break His legs. And why not? Because it was not necessary. He was already dead. And so they took a spear and they thrust it into his side and outflowed blood and water mixed. A high day was coming, the Sabbath at sunset, and no dead body of any Jew can be touched on the Sabbath day. Get him down from the cross, break his legs, so he'll die immediately. But it wasn't necessary. He was already dead. Two more eyewitnesses, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus, rich men who claimed the body of Jesus and they took Him down from the cross to prepare Him for burial. They wrapped Him in grave clothes from the chin to the ankles in these grave clothes. They were near enough to handle His body. 
and they put the headpiece on. It was like a scarf a woman wears, tied under his chin. They did that to everybody, every dead body, in order that the jaw would not drop down and become grotesque to look upon. And so they were near enough to put a scarf and tie it under his chin and wrap his body in grave clothes. And they put it, they covered it with alloys, a kind of a paste-like constituency to prevent the stench of death from coming. So handling the body of Jesus, being near enough to tie the headpiece under his chin, their witness is that he was dead. He was dead. Charles Dickens begins his Christmas carol, immortal Christmas carol, with these arresting words. Marley was dead to begin with. There can be no question about that. His burial certificate was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the head, the, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Even old Scrooge signed the death certificate and his hand is good upon change for about anything he signs his name to. Marley was dead as a doornail. They wrote the same thing about Jesus. If they did not write it, they thought it. He was dead to begin with. There's no question about that. They saw him dead. They saw him buried. And they saw the stone fashioned before the grave with the seal of imperial Rome upon it. And Pilate signed the seal and his name was good upon change to about anything he put his hand to. Jesus of Nazareth was as dead as a doornail. When a monarch died in the ancient world, as a part of tribute to them, if he was a seafaring man, they would put his body on a ship, on a little vessel, and put it out to sea to drift out to the sea he loved. The poet captures such an event one day when a monarch's body was put upon the hull and set out to sea and says it like this. Long stood Sir Bedivere, revolving many memories, until the hull became one black dot against the emerging dawn. And on the mere the wailing died away, and when the last moan was gone, was passed forevermore, in that dead world's winter dawn, he stood amazed at the silence and moaned, The king is gone. When they took him down from the cross in that dead world sunset, they moaned, the king is gone, he's dead. But what happened to his body? The scripture says that the disciples, the, the women came early in the morning to view his body on their way. They did not anticipate that he would be gone. They were worrying about who would roll away the stone. It must have weighed a ton. And as they fretted and worried on their way to the tomb, they discussed how we're going to get inside to see him. But when they got there, they found that this stone weighing a ton that had been fastened in a little groove, as they always did, when they rolled those stones before the grave, they would slide in a little groove, a little cutting, and it, and it made it impossible to move it. When they got there, they found that some almighty hand had moved that stone uphill. 
And they looked inside to find it empty. It was empty, open, not so that Jesus could get out, but that so you and I could look in. Now what happened to his body? It was either he either left in his own strength, or he left by the help or hands of someone else. If his enemies took him out, why didn't they present his body? And the myth of the resurrection would have been evaporated into the sky. If his friends took him out, how do we explain the transformation of these disciples who, who were just an hour or two before, a few hours before, were fearing for their lives and now they spilled out into the streets with boldness and courage to preach a gospel that was a lie that they themselves perpetrated? Does that make sense? Or his body was removed by the supernatural resurrection of an almighty Father. Now I want you to go back to the text with me. I want to show you something interesting. Verse 6 says that Simon Peter and John came toward the tomb. But John went ahead of Simon Peter and he looked into the, into the tomb. The word says that he saw that it was empty. It's the Greek word blepo. It means to glance at. It's what you do with your watch. Some of you just did it. You, you glance at it. You look in, he, looked, he glanced into the tomb to find it empty. Says that Simon Peter came, went inside the tomb and beheld. It's a word that means to make careful analysis, a, an analytical observation. And this is what he beheld. He beheld the grave clothes there. Now does it make sense? Is it not irrational? that if a man was going to steal the body of a dead man, that he'd take him out of the grave clothes? Does that make sense? He, he didn't think so. The second thing he noticed about those grave clothes were that they were, as the Greek says, still in their folds. Now if someone were to take a body out of the grave clothes, wouldn't in a hurry, wouldn't he just strip the grave clothes off? And, and maybe toss them aside, but when he saw the grave clothes were there as though the body had evaporated out of them, and he beheld that analytically. He saw it. Then the scripture says that John came and saw, and the Greek word means that he perceptively saw to believe. It's like what happens when the math teacher explains that theorem over and over again, you can't get it. You can see it up on the board, but you don't understand it. You can't grasp it. It's not here. And one day she finally writes it up there and the light comes on and the truth is discovered and you say, I see it now. And so John came in that empty tomb and saw what he saw and he said, I believe it. The Lord has been raised. Now read the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And in that 15th chapter, it says four things. He was buried, that's a fact. He was raised, that's the proof. He was dead, that's a fact. He, had, he, he, he appeared many times to witnesses, that's the proof. A few years ago, a man named Frank Morrison, who was a student of Matthew Arnold in Oxford, a brilliant man, a protege of Thomas Huxley, set out to write a book 
to establish the myth of the resurrection and to prove the Scriptures a lie. And so in his research and study, he decided to write a book, not the one he intended to write, but one which emerged out of his research and which gave witness to his new faith. This is what he said in the book, Who Moved the Stone, in the foreword. Listen. This essentially is a confession. The inner story of a man who set out to write one kind of book and found himself compelled by the sheer force of circumstances to write quite another book. Are you listening? It is not that the facts themselves were altered. They are recorded imperishably in the monuments and pages of human history. The interpretation to be put upon the fact underwent a change. Somehow my perspective shifted, not suddenly as in a flash of insight, but slowly, almost imperceptibly, by the stubbornness of the facts themselves. The book as it was originally planned was left high and dry like those Thames barges when the great river goes out to meet the incoming sea. This writer discovered not only that he could no longer write the book he originally intended, but that he would not if he could. Jesus is indeed alive. Now our decision this morning, is the resurrection a myth or a miracle? Will we believe the theories that are presented as shallow as shallow can be, or will we believe the fact of the resurrection? Now, the question that someone might raise is this. What difference does it make? I know that you come on Easter time and you come to church and, and you talk about the resurrection. What difference in the world does it make if he's dead or alive? Well, read the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians and notice the, the negative first. If he is not raised from the dead, then your faith is vain. Every sermon I preached has been wasted. It's useless. Your faith is vain. You cannot believe in God. You cannot believe His power or His word or His love or His compassion, His mercy. You cannot trust Him. And if you cannot trust God, who can you trust? If He was not indeed raised from the dead, if He's not alive, then you're still in your sins, and so am I. At the core of Christianity is the belief of, of the, uh, that we are forgiven of our sins. It is the greatest need that anyone in this room possesses. To go out from here tonight, today, and know that your sin has been pardoned and forgiven. That the weight and burden of sin has been removed. If Jesus is not alive, you are yet in your sin. If Jesus is not alive, then all of those who have died, you'll never see again. It's amazing what the preacher hears when he stands at the head of a, of a, of a coffin. You can hear all kinds of things. One day I was standing at the head of the casket of a young man a revolutionary kind of a guy, a rebel. I remember his broken mother came by and this is what she said. Son, 
and her heart was breaking with the grief of it. I'll never see you again. I'll never see you again. When you take that loved one out to the place of sorrow, you can understand if Jesus is not alive that He's gone forever. And this life of ours, as Shakespeare put it, is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. has no meaning. But if He is alive positively, there is some tremendous truth of fact to hold to and to cling to. First is that if He indeed is raised from the dead, if He's resurrected, if He's a living Lord, then He's conquered everything that conquers you. Even the last enemy, which is death. Now they tipped off that ball game Monday night that was to decide the national championship. Everybody knows that Georgetown's going to win. Villanova doesn't have a chance. They tipped that game off. And Villanova did one of those most remarkable things, caused or, or completed perhaps one of the greatest upsets in the history of college basketball. Won that game. Now who's number one? Villanova's number one. Now you may not like that, but they are. You know why? Because they beat everybody that had ever beaten them. And in the process of elimination, they came down to the final game, and in that tournament of elimination, they beat the last enemy and, was, and, and were victorious to be number one. Now let me ask you this morning, who deserves to be first in your life? Isn't it the victor, the one who has finished, the last enemy who has, who has defeated, the last one who is death? Doesn't he deserve to be your Lord? And so Julian the Roman Emperor decided he would eliminate from the earth the Christian, the last one, and he began his campaign of extinction. But at the very outset of the, of the battle, a well-aimed arrow struck the heart of Julian the Roman Emperor, and in an act of defiance, half defiance and half worship, he caught his own blood that was flowing out of his own heart as he fell to the ground and hurled that blood to the sky and shouted, O thou Galilean conqueror, thou hast conquered. Who deserves to be number one? He deserves to be first. For he's been everywhere you'll ever go and is conquered. I lived eight miles out in the country. Margaret lived four miles the other side of town. That's 12 miles too far to separate us. Couldn't stand it. Had to see her every day. Between my house and hers were about two miles of tight land. Now you folks out here in Oklahoma have no idea what tight land is. Come to Knox County, I'll show you some. When you walk, you get stilts. You know, it just builds up. And it's slick. It just hangs on, that, that, that mud. That after, a, after a heavy rain, it's almost impassable, impossible. But not to keep me from Margaret's house. And so I'd start to her house on that, two, on that 12 miles of dirt road, if I ever got to the tight land area and saw that somebody had been there ahead of me, brought great relief and comfort. Yeah, ruts. Somebody's been there ahead of me. I'll just get in the ruts and make it. 
Wherever you go, whatever you face, hear me, friend, whatever sorrow, whatever struggle, whatever sin, whatever temptation, whatever trouble, whatever burden, whatever sorrow, He's already been there and has conquered it. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, it means that there is available to you and me a divine energy and power for life. Now the scripture says something remarkable. It says that the same redeeming creative energy that brought Jesus from the grave is available to you and to me. Not just to raise us when we die, but to help us while we live. And no wonder the disciples went to those people who had been defeated, a hundred times defeated by moral and spiritual defeat, and shouted to them, there is a way of victory. Now there are some of you this morning would say only the weak would trust in a power outside of himself, but that's not how you operate in the physical world. There are two ways to cross this continent. You can start out afoot or you can take a jet plane. I'll take the plane. There are two ways to go to England. You can start swimming across the Atlantic, you'll drown, or you can get an ocean liner and get there in ease and luxury. There are two ways to dig a foundation for a skyscraper. You can take a pickaxe and a shovel and start to work, or you can get some of these big machines that'll do it for you. I'll take the machines. There are two ways to deal with temptation. You can handle temptation in your own strength or power, or you can trust in the jetliner. There are two ways to encounter or to, or to, to meet sorrows that come like sea billows. You can grit your teeth and bear your soul against it like a stoic, or you can trust in the peace that passes all understanding. There are two, way, two ways this morning that you can encounter the struggles of life and the burdens. You can suck it up and handle it in your own strength, or you can rest in the might of God. There is a power outside of yourself this morning that's available because He was raised from the dead. Because he was raised from the dead, it means that right will ultimately triumph over wrong. I know it doesn't look like that, but the songwriter was right when he said, This is my Father's world. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong oft seems so strong, God is the ruler yet. Let me tell you, God has won the victory. Because he's been raised from the dead, we live forever. We live forever. He, he is, he, he, he's alive. He, he is alive. Um, the, 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 the youth musical catches up on that statement and the preacher says it and the people say it back to him. Would you like to do that? Say it back to me. He is alive. 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 And because he is alive, we live forever. The wife of the young physician could hardly stand the grief of her young husband's sudden death. Her friends did not know if she could endure or not, but she handled it with great triumph and courage. Someone asked her why, how she could accept something like that and be so comforted and courageous. She said, come with me and I'll show you. The day he died, the maid forgot and left a little note that he'd let on, put on the door 
Maybe she forgot. Maybe in the providence of God, he caused her to forget so that she would have the word. This note he left on the door of his office when he left for lunch. The note read, Gone for a little while. I'll see you soon. And so Peter Marshall died. Before he died, his last words were as he put his hand out from under the cover of his of the stretcher that was carrying him to the hospital, he raised his fingers like this and said to his wife, Catherine, it's recorded in her book, Honey, I'll see you in the morning. And because he is raised from the dead, he lives because he is alive. I'll see her, I'll see him, we'll see them in the morning. He is alive. Now the decision this morning is not really the decision the decision you have to make is not really this. You don't really have to decide, is he alive or is he dead? Was he raised or not? We all believe that. I think most of us here would believe there's enough evidence, irrevocable evidence, irrefutable truth, a fact or evidence that he is alive. The big question this morning, the big issue is, is he your Savior? Does he live in your heart? Does He reign supreme there? Is He Lord of all? Is He first? That's the question you'll have to decide and me. And I come to you on the basis of this crucified, resurrected Savior to plead with you. Let Jesus Christ come into your life and let Him be Lord. The first invitation we'll offer this morning is for you to invite Jesus Christ into your life. The Scripture says... If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I've noticed that it's very difficult to find people who will make decisions on Easter Sunday. I bet I've preached, I've preached 26, 7 years uh, in, in two services on Easter every year since I started out. You don't see many. Why? It's, the, it's just the right time. It's the perfect time to come forward and give our heart and life to Jesus Christ and be saved to know the power of the living Lord in us. Would you do that today? The second invitation is for you to come and join the church. Place your life here. If He loved it enough to die for it, he, you ought to love it enough to live for it, to serve it, to serve in it. The third invitation is for those of us who've kind of lived on the extreme, on the extremity, out on the periphery, on the periphery, rejecting the claim of Christ as Lord of our life. Would you like to come this morning to say, I believe Jesus Christ lives and I want Him to be Lord first in me. After we've had a moment of prayer, the right time to come is on the first stanza. Many of you will come if you'll do what God wants you to do. I'm certain of it. After we've prayed, our choir will sing. We'll ask you to come. Father, thank you for the glorious fact of this Easter day that our Lord indeed lives. And I pray that in every heart He shall live and reign and be Lord of all. And I pray that you'll point out to us our need if it is the need of the lost man, lost sinner, to come and confess faith in Christ, that we shall. If it is a need of rededication of life, we shall. If it is a need to unite with the church, we shall. 
God, I pray that you'll have your way because you are the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Now do it today in our midst, what you desire to do, we pray in Jesus' name. The spirit of prayer, our choir begins to sing. We ask you to stand right now and just come as you're standing on the very first word.